Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. Okay, so this is episode 41. I am sitting down with Ashling, who uh, normally in the last four episodes, I've, I've been tracking down people from speaking at virtual events because I attend so many virtual events. But this time, you attended my session <laughs> at the IndiePie conference, which is kind of funny because, you know, it was virtual, so it didn't matter where you are, really. Uh, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Ashling Fay. Um, I'm originally from the Dominican Republic, but I've lived, I lived in the US, I lived in Germany, and right now I'm calling from beautiful, sunny Bloomington, Indiana. And yeah, I am a software engineer by training. I'm currently looking for a role. Great, so what, how, how'd you get to Indiana? <laughs> Oh, well, so that's a funny story. Um, I was living in Germany and I kind of never got used to life there and the culture. And I have a long distance partner who's lived in Bloomington her whole life. She just kind of spontaneously was like, hey, why don't we get married and you move back to the States? And I'm like, honestly, that, that sounds pretty great. We got married in March last year. We've been married for a year and a bit now. Great. Well, congratulations. One year, Thank one you. year and a half. <laughs> in in such an, uh, uh, I almost use the word unprecedented, but I'm sick of hearing that word. But right. in, such a, in such a crazy time. So my session was on, and I have to confess, I had a little bit of imposter syndrome on this this session not because I wasn't familiar with the topic, but because conferences like the Python conference are usually focused on code and execution. And the angle of my session was more around giving developers a perspective of if they want to build intelligence into their application, what it actually takes to launch it. Because I've seen so many applications out there go to market touting of machine learning and AI and they really struggle to get any sort of um, adoption just because a lot of times because they're overhyping the, the smart aspect of it. Mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts around just broadly the application and the availability of AI and machine learning technologies? Well, I'm in kind of in an interesting spot where I feel like most of my peers are fairly cynical about machine learning. The phrase glorified linear algebra is no stranger around my parts. You know, I think it's an amazing tool when you actually are using it for the right use cases, right? And there's a couple that come to mind immediately. Uh, the kind of the image identification aspect of it is really kind of interesting and exciting because for like for years, analyzing text, analyzing words even was like not that hard. And then like, oh, 
if I gave you a bunch of pictures of birds, can you tell me the name of each bird? Impossible, completely impossible. Until we started developing these systems that just kind of work on learning by example. And that's the thing, the, the kind of the interesting thing about machine learning and the word learning is doing a lot of work there. But the idea is you don't have to teach a system from the ground up rather you just like you're able to teach a system by example how to do something right um and i think that so i probably tend to agree with your peers and fall into that curmudgeon category uh just this weekend one of um he's a popular figure in the SecOps space uh, a guy by the name of robert in the uk he posted something on his linkedin saying that uh, machine learning and AI in security is just slightly more advanced than Clippy in Microsoft Word. <laughs> and and I, I, I share that sentiment. He puts it in a much funnier way. My last episode uh, talking about, you know, security and DevSecOps and one of the job criterias was basically to be paranoid by default. <laughs> which I think is, I think actually becomes like a really useful skill set when you're testing applications and thinking about ways that people will, will break them. But what you just said is, is good because you are actually focusing on the bottom up, like what is the value it can provide? I think where a lot of the curmudgeoning comes from is the top down um, companies and kind of what hopefully came across in my session is don't sell the fairy dust, don't sell the magic. Um, talk sure. about the benefit. What are so you mentioned image recognition? What are some of your other more favorite applications? I think a thing that's really interesting, uh, and I really didn't mention how exactly I became interested in machine learning, but the way it happened was I was in a grad school program. I didn't finish, but it was all on brain computer interfaces. And so this idea that, you know, you can connect someone to an EEG and measure their brain waves and try to control a computer system through that. And, you know, in the classes that I took, it was, we were doing that with machine learning. We didn't always call it machine learning, uh, but, you know, these like linear differentiators type of things. I think that is also like, a very, very interesting application. It's still very uh, baby stages, but again, you have a system that's so as com so complex as the human brain is, if you try to develop a system where you're like, okay, we understand perfectly the human brain, and because we understand it perfectly, we can tell a computer to do this when it measures that. I don't know that we're ever going to be able to do that. But if you can tell a computer, take a look at this brain as it's doing these actions, can you like tell all the similarities and the difference between all the other actions and control a system that way? That's sort of works. It still doesn't work perfectly because the, the human brain produces incredible amounts of noise, but it works better than almost anything else that has been tried. So... I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities in that area as well. Yeah, in the the social aspects of of this stuff is super fascinating. Um, you know, people want to 
want to beat up on self-driving cars, but then they mm -hmm. they neglect to think about how bad humans are at driving generally. I know I'm a horrible driver. If I could yeah. never drive again, I'd be totally okay with that. One of the things that I also have always been really fascinated from is my experience in intelligence was even before machine learning was categorized as a thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, we talk, everybody talks about AI. We've been talking about AI since computers came into existence. Yeah. But was the days of OCR and I was doing NLP. And then even before that, when I was in college, I was focused a lot in genetic algorithms. And the black box nature of these algorithms is super fascinating to me. The fact that you can build a neural net or you can build some algorithm and have no way to know what's in there and how it works. So there's two aspects of it. You don't know, but also how do you test? Like how do you debug? Mm -hmm. um, that has always been really fascinating. Yeah, to me too. I, I have not made up my mind whether or not I believe it is acceptable that we have, we're relying so much on these black boxes, but I think that's the nature of the game. That's how it's always been and that's how it is. I think obviously like the only way we have to test right now is empirically based on results. And that's kind of different than the software world testing. Again, it's, a, it's kind of maybe a matter of perspective where you can't necessarily test uh, component parts. You can only tell that it does what you want it to do. And yeah, it's kind of like hum as humans, we, we're okay with that, I guess. We've decided we're okay with that. Because you think about something like nuclear power. I remember reading that we didn't completely understand all the mecha mechanisms through which it worked. And we still don't understand all the intricacies of like quantum dynamics, but we were able to figure out a way to get them to work for us. I think as humans, as software developers, we're always in this kind of in-between land between what is practical and only practical considerations and what is like technical, technological, and what is, what is like the knowledge and the science behind it. We're the people who are like, okay, we don't know everything that there is to know, but we do know how to use it, so we're gonna use it. I mean, even electricity is, is to some degree that. So yeah. it, it creates this kind of, I, I have love-hate relationship with black holes for that very reason, for all the reasons that it's mysterious or all the reasons I dislike it. And I think that's kind of the same draw uh, for you know, machine learning and, and some of the intelligent algorithms. So yeah. one of the things at the end of the session that you joined a follow-up Q&A, things that you really m mentioned that you were interested in was, was chatbots. And yeah. as you talk about chatbots, that's like one of the most obvious interfaces a human has with somebody because, you know, dialogue and conversation is, is a very human thing. You're having dialogue and conversation with the bot. And that also raises the question of kind of the Turing test of how do you know when something is, you know, independent and, and a machine on its own, uh, which I think is a flawed test. But what, where, what applications of chatbots do you find most interesting? The applications that I find the most interesting are the ones that exist. I don't know if I should call it this, but I'm going to say the companionship sphere. You know, I think a lot about how 
one of the like earliest chatbots was this program Elise that was very simple. It could only reply out of a hundred pre-selected lines, but it was developed to function as a sort of therapist. Uh, and this was like in the sixties, I think. And, you know, since then, uh, obviously the technology has grown a lot and to the use of machine learning, we've, we've learned how to teach them to speak more naturally again by like feeding them examples of how we speak and having them figure it out relationally. I think uh, it's kind of an underexplored field right now because it's not immediately apparent how you can make money with it. So I think I see a lot of tools out there to build chatbots in general and in specific for kind of customer service applications as a way of maybe um, getting, talking to people when you can't get a human in front of them. And obviously there's this tension of what is literally is the next best thing to have someone talk to a machine uh, as opposed to a human and when is it just a cost cutting measure. I think we're only beginning to explore the potential of that technology. It intersects with things like Siri and Alexa, voice activated assistants. People are always working to try to make better at being conversational and understanding people. And that people already talk to them, you know? Uh, I think everyone has tried to ask their Google Home how they're doing. And I'm sure Google has a bunch of pretty neat responses pre-programmed there. But, uh, you know, it's still short from being a person that lives in your home that's connected to Google. So the, the most widely used applications that I've seen are in support, tech support, and which is largely like the backend training data is your support database. So it's Zendesk, it's, For whatever, sure. you know, whatever you're using. And then the other application is sales. So somebody's at your site and you want to start engaging with them. It raises a whole bunch of like ethical questions of, you know, should you tell them that there's a bot? I mean, for mm -hmm. us techies, it's so obvious. You already know, right? Like right off the yeah. bat. For other people, maybe they don't know. And it's definitely kind of a cost savings and an engagement measure. What you talked about therapy is interesting because even if you know it's a bot, the bot mm -hmm. kind of forces you to slow down and go through a mental exercise that you may not go through on your own. So it For may sure. walk you through a sequence of things where you come to realization. So it's not so much that the bot is actually helping you give the answers. It's that it's helping you help yourself, which I think yeah. is super fascinating. And I mean, if I am able to get completely obscure here, um, you know, you might compare them to the ancient Greek practice of daemons, which, you know, now we know daemons as background processes. Uh, but there was a practice of just kind of like philosophers in order to work through their arguments, they would sort of create this persona in their heads that they would talk to and it would help them kind of like get their thoughts in order. And like, obviously you can still do that. I think it's really, really interesting that you can get a machine um, kind of pull some of the slack and do some of the work. And it's kind of like, 
so if you're talking to a chatbot, it's almost like a three-part conversation because there's the chatbot who, you know, is trying its best, but it has limited capabilities. And so you probably, a human, fills in some of the gaps. Like a chatbot might say something, and if you have to imagine them saying them in a voice, it might be like completely monotonous, but you will probably add the inflection and the emotion behind it. Um, and yeah, I think in the field of therapy, for instance, also, there could be some potential to like, you have a therapist who you see once a week and that's very good for you. And that's, you know, the most that like is recommendable that you speak to an actual therapist. Also, obviously they have other clients and stuff. They can't just answer the phone whenever you call them but a chatbot could, and they might not be able to provide the same support that a human can. But say you're having a panic attack and you just need to talk to someone, anyone, they could help with that. Okay, integrate it with your social media so that it brought context from like what you're putting out in the world. Oh my God, Ashling, I'm Faybot. I'm a little concerned with what you've been posting on Twitter lately. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's that too. I think <laughs> that, that you have to be careful and you have to build in mechanisms where the chatbot actually can't make judgments. All it can mm -hmm. do is kind of draw out. It can't, it can't, it shouldn't be allowed to make judgments or opinions about your state because those are could be the catalyst for something really bad if yeah actually yeah they're learning from human conversations they're in a sense mimicking human conversations as humans have a bunch of tools that we when we talk to someone the way we relate to a person uh, obviously people talk about text textual and subtextual and body language i think there's a whole universe of more other things out there, including things like context and personal history begins anew every time you message it and doesn't remember everything you've told it before would not be as effective as one that has a history to draw on. So a really interesting problem when it comes to machine learning is the older your data sets, your truth data becomes. Have you ever seen the world, the movie Inside Out? No, but it's on my list. It's very yeah. pioneer as a trouble. It's great. It's one of actually one of my favorite uh, Pixar slash Disney movies. But one of the things that might be an interesting concept is that you allow your algorithms to maintain intelligence, but you degrade its integrity over time. So, mm. like, you throw away. If you could, I don't know how you would do this with a neural net because you can't just throw away a node. Get rid getting rid of one node could change the results dramatically. But if you were to like de-emphasize or degrade the historical, just like your memory does, it mm -hmm. changes every time you recall something, you know, you're degrading it a little bit. Um, allowing that maybe to happen could counterbalance the fact that historical information could actually overwhelm modern day stuff and not be contextually accurate. I know yeah. all of this is very fluffy. We'll, we'll get to more tactical in a second, but. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, Cause your talk was about like, here's where machine learning is not magic. And our talk is almost like, here's how it could be magic. Exactly. Which is fun. And the reason I wanted to chat so much, cause it is so exciting. And, you know, again, genetic algorithms is such a cool algorithm. It's so cool. And it's not that difficult to build. 
But what's super fascinating about it is everything is predicated on this fitness function. So the thing that you evaluate your population of critters against. Creating the fitness function requires a lot of time prior knowledge. Unless you have a human be the fitness function where it like scores the results of the algorithm. If you want the fitness function to be autonomous, you have to already kind of have the answer. And if you already have the answer, you don't yeah. need the algorithm. So it's this kind of frustrating paradox that always drove me up the wall. And I wanted it to be so magical. And when you get to reality, sometimes it's like, well, maybe I'm, I just use stats because it's yeah. fine. <laughs> and I think going back to the thing that we're saying that a lot of people are cynical and annoyed with machine learning, I think some of that comes from you know, you have a client and they're asking you to do something and you're like, we can't do this. And you have to explain to them all of the reasons why the thing that they're asking is not possible or not possible the way they're asking it to be done. But I personally, and I imagine a few other people are like this, are thinking in the back of their minds, could I make it work? How could this work? And I think that's um, also how we grow the technology. So yeah. like, I love, I love machine learning. I love machine learning and I love AI. And it's not, you know, it's not Steven Spielberg ex machina AI yet, but like, it's still an incredibly interesting and exciting set of tools, technologies and field of inquiry. Yeah, and I was saying before we started this session that I bring up the term AI ops, AI and machine learning quite a bit because of the whole curmudgeon aspect. And I'm always curious people's response. And, uh, and it's, I think it, there is that whole, you know, you want it to be something magical and amazing. And in some respects it is, in some respects it's not. And dealing with non-techies, uh, it, can, it can be very dangerous what, what their expectation is related to this technology. So the conference that we were at was a Python conference. And I briefly talked about why Python and machine learning, but I want to hear from you, from your perspective, what, what is your interest in Python and why do you think Python is used so heavily in machine learning? Mm -hmm. uh, so my personal interest with Python, I think grew kind of organically. I never decided that I was going to make Python my primary programming language, but the way I do a lot is instead of trying to write my own program from scratch, I try to find if someone else has already written a program uh, that's open source that I can adapt. And a lot, a lot, a lot of really cool open source tools are all developed in Python. And so I just slowly kept falling into using Python more and more. And it is, it does lend itself really well to be used for almost anything because of you know how simple yet powerful how many libraries it has that's kind of why i fell in love with it i think the reason it's become the kind of the de facto language for machine learning is because of numpy and sidepy and Jupyter primarily like if i'm being honest and if people don't know these are libraries NumPy and SciPy are libraries to do complex mathematical operations on matrices and vectors, which 
is the basis of machine learning. And like before, people probably use MATLAB a lot. Uh, and MATLAB is a program that lets you do complicated operations with vectors and matrices, amongst other things. Uh, that is very expensive. And then Python comes along and it's like, okay, here's a bunch of open source tools that can pretty much replicate everything that you're doing. Uh, and it's a joy to use. And, you know, obviously this is, that is all more in the, in the data science part rather than the actual engineering part. But, you know, if, if Python was already there in the science part, obviously other people were going to flock to it to also the build tools like Pandas and TensorFlow and all the, the cool machine learning libraries. Yeah. And it's crazy with languages how, you know, the language itself was not necessarily made for machine learning or big data, but this flywheel that is created by the community and libraries takes it in that direction. It's self-feeding. Mm -hmm. It's pretty remarkable. So uh, we're getting close to the end, but I wanted to ask you about, um, because I'm a physics nerd and it looks like you, part of your degree was in physics. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, when I got to college, I was like, I'm gonna study physics. That is the only thing I care about. And I didn't even know um, university in the Dominican Republic works very differently than in the US. I didn't know that you could have more than one major, for instance. So originally I was gonna do physics and theater as my majors. And I slowly kind of realized, okay, but computer science would probably be more useful. And it's kind of funny how after I graduated, I slowly but surely started drifting more towards the computer science part than the physics part. Uh, but I think the thing that drew me to physics is that it's just weird. It's just really bonkers and weird. And it is a thing that very serious people spend a lot of time studying. By now, it's cliche to talk. Everyone's sick of hearing about Schrodinger's cat. But Schrodinger's cat is the reason I fell in love with physics. That's cool. Yeah, I, and I think that computer science and physics are, are happy companions. My, I got a degree in computer science and math. I'm mm -hmm. actually awful at math. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it. I got, and I got a yeah. business admin degree as well. Um, which, let's be honest, anybody can get a physics degree. <laughs> I, I hope I didn't insult one of our listeners. But let's I plead the third. <laughs> I think they go hand in hand. My, my, historically, my favorite physicist is Richard Feynman. And mm -hmm. what I like about Richard is that he always had a way of explaining things. Um, because there is, physicists tend to have this kind of entry barrier that they create. Like if you don't understand the equation, you're not allowed to the club. And Richard didn't believe in that. And I, he was a big draw into physics for me, but also my biggest draw, which is what you said, just, it's just weird. Like my yeah. obsession with black holes, I, sometimes I'm like, I love black holes. They're so cool and interesting. And then other times I'm like complete nihilist where I'm like, well, shit, if black holes exist, I'm done. Like, <laughs> this is weird. And then I just read this morning about a black neutron star colliding with a black hole and some, so, some implications to that that I don't currently understand. Go yeah, I, I, I think I read about that one too. Like, 
the black holes either swallow the neutron star or something very similar to it. And like, if you know a little bit of astrophysics, like neutron stars are almost more scary to me. If you had like a piece of a neutron star that was like the size of a bullet, that thing would have enough gravity that as you're walking towards it, even though you're on a perfectly level surface, you'd start to think that the floor is angling downwards because you're feeling like the incredible gravitational pull of this very tiny thing. It's weird. It's wonky. And I, and a part of the energy of, you know, people who are into computer science and physics, and this goes back to what we were saying in machine learning is they can live in that duality of like the very concrete. These are the tools I have. This is what I can build and the very abstract of, this is what's just crazy. I don't fully understand it. I don't need to fully understand it, but there's something very fascinating there. You're, when you're in the industry, you can still spend time studying the theory. It's very, very beneficial when you do. Uh, more developers, more people who live purely in the concrete practical world should spend a little time with the theoretical world. You just get to do things and you just get to discover things that like, you would not have gotten from just drawing it out on paper. You want to be careful not to become the, the scientist from Jurassic Park, but you also don't want to like only look at bones forever. Yeah, it's a crazy balance. And I mean, you think about how beat up NASA gets for, or I guess not so much now, but historically has gotten beat up for their budgets and, you know, just kind of having people saw it as kind of having fun and playing out, you know, in the universe when this, the things that they had to tackle have resulted in very real world industrial applications and, and technologies. And it's almost, that's true. It's like, sometimes you just have to tackle the big and hell, that's what Bell Labs was. And Bell Labs came up with a whole bunch of stuff, but their charter was basically go and do cool things <laughs> and, and yeah. address complex problems. So it, it is a weird balance. It's hard to get people to understand that balance. And I think it's also hard for the practitioner not to get absorbed in one, one direction or other. For sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like I think, you know, I cannot allow myself to live the entirety of the day up in the clouds uh, or cloud computing or anything. But because at the end of the day, you know, you still need to make money. You still need to make a product that's actually useful to people who are actually alive. I mean, a lot of times in this podcast, we talk about soft skills. This is one layer on top of having soft skills. I don't think it's reasonable to have somebody to come in and understand physics and, and even philosophy. You, you brought up the, which is kind of the precursor to all of this. But if you identify somebody who has that balance, then they become, I think, very successful as engineers. And also I'd say in the world of like marketing and sales, marketing and salespeople have to become more technical because yeah. they're selling more technical products. They need to understand it as well. Otherwise it's hard to compete. People really want to specialize. And I think it almost always is a mistake. I think having more knowledge and more things, even if you do have a specialty, it behooves you to know a little bit about everything, at least a little bit about everything in your field. Well, hopefully this episode jazzes people up to go 
uh, and the possibilities to get started with this machine learning, especially, is is amazing. It's almost too easy. I'll say for some. <laughs> well, Ashling, cool. thanks for joining me. I, I really appreciate it, and you know, I look forward to talking again in the future and maybe seeing you at another conference. Not this was so much fun. Uh, do you mind if I make a plug? I plug away. Okay. Uh, well, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm still looking for work. So if you like what you heard, you can come find me either on Twitter at where I'm at Transferry. So that T-R-A-N-S-F-A-E-R-I-E. I like to spell fairy the difficult way. <laughs> or my website, transferry.com, has my email and everything. So do reach out if you have any leads. And, and I don't mean to brag, but you did a name drop in one of your blog posts of me. So I <laughs> ever, yeah, you have a great blog. So go track Ashling down, follow her, um, check out her blog. And also I think Twitter is, is a really important tool uh, in this job market to, to reach out. Mm -hmm. 